The first reading is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat, sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not, that will not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Our second reading today comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and those seated on them, were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the fourth, four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are numerous as the seas of the sand as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lizzie. In case you hadn't gathered, uh, today is uh, number nine in our series of ten sermons looking at the book of Revelation. I've been doing these on average about once a month going through this year. Uh, if, you, if you want to catch up on ones you've missed, they're all available on our website and on our podcast, looking at heaven's perspective on things like the environment and a variety of issues. Today, we're looking at heaven's perspective on martyrdom. And the 
capacity of humans to give their lives for something that they believe in is both glorious and terrifying. Jesus himself said, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's a quote from John chapter 15. And the willingness of people to put their own lives at risk or to knowingly pay the ultimate price for the love of their fellow humans is a quality that echoes the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. This much is a glory of humanity. But the other side of the coin, the person who dies intentionally to kill or to maim or to scar the terrorist suicide bomber, for example, is as terrifying as the other example is glorious. And so it is that today on Remembrance Sunday, as we recall the sacrifices and victims of war, today we come to consider heaven's perspective on martyrdom. And as we do so, we need to tease out something important here, which is what do we actually mean by martyrdom? You see, I do not believe that the terrorist suicide bomber is a martyr. They may think that they are, and others may claim it of them. But I want to resist that label. Martyrs are those who stand up for their beliefs to the point where others take their lives from them. They are not those who take the lives of others in pursuit of their course and their cause. Was my grandfather a martyr, serving in coastal command, shot down, killed, 21 years old, leaving a young wife, pregnant, that's where my mum comes into the story. He was certainly a victim, and in many ways an innocent victim, although all of us carry our culpability. It's not straightforward, is it? When Liz and I are traveling, we enjoy visiting local churches. Particularly, we enjoy looking at the artwork on the walls and around various kind of altars and chapels. And often we find that the devotional focus, particularly in Roman Catholic churches, is on an act of martyrdom. So some saint is depicted kind of holding their own severed head in their hands. Uh, we saw one recently. Uh, a woman was holding her eyes on a plate in front of her, indicating, of course, the manner of their martyrdom for the cause and name of Christ. This is, I think, technically where martyrdom sits. And, of course, martyrdom giving one's life for one's faith in Christ goes right back to the early years of Christianity. In the Bible, we have the story of the stoning of Stephen, early in the book of Acts. We have the story of Saul's murderous campaign against early Christians before his conversion. 
And as Christianity spread through the Roman Empire in the middle of the first century, largely, of course, due to that same Saul, although by this point being called Paul, his missionary activities, the Roman state quickly became the chief agent of Christian martyrdom. Probably the most famous and notorious example is that of the Emperor Nero, who in 64 AD, just some 30 years or so after Jesus, ordered Christians to be rounded up and torn apart by dogs or burned alive to light his gardens at night. He was uh, probably trying to deflect attention away from some of his own uh, terrible atrocities and looking for a scapegoat and the Christians and weirdly the fire brigade came under his uh, came under his attack at this point and it's almost certainly this persecution by Nero and the ongoing more sporadic martyrdoms that followed it which lie behind our reading this morning from the book of Revelation if you're interested, I sort of date Revelation to about 71. So we're just off the back of Nero's martyrdom period. Now, I am well aware that these little 10 verses from chapter 20 of the book of Revelation are some of the most controversial in the whole of the Bible. I once wrote a 70,000-word academic thesis on their interpretation. And I promise I'm not going to go through all of that with you this morning. <laughs> the word millennium is one of those hot topic catchphrases which people often associate with the book of Revelation. It's one of those words which has acquired something of a life of its own, which has taken it far beyond the pages of the little book where it started. So in contemporary culture... The, the phrase, the millennium, has come to mean a dawning thousand-year golden age. And not just within Christianity. If you've ever spent any time uh, looking at the new age, the idea of the dawning age of Aquarius has its origins in the millennium. Or even the Third Reich, the Third Age of Nazi Germany. You can trace it right the way back through a... 11th century monk called Joachim of Fiore, you can trace it right the way back to the book of Revelation. For some Christians, the coming millennium is regarded as the key to understanding the whole of the book of Revelation, if not the whole of the Bible and the whole of faith, with endless discussions about whether Jesus is going to return to the earth before or after the millennium. This is where you get your pre-millennials and your post-millennials. This morning, I'm afraid, I'm not going to talk at length about pre, post, or a millennialism. I'm not going to give you a lecture on partial rapture dispensationalism and how this particular interpretation of these verses can, I think, be seen as directly influencing Donald Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord because those Christians who are Trump's power base, on the basis of their reading of scripture, don't believe it's a human responsibility to work for the good of creation in combating climate change. I'm not going to tell you all about that. That's for another day, I'm afraid. We don't have time. Instead, I'm going to talk about how these verses address the pastoral problem of martyrdom. 
After all, today is a day when we are remembering those who have paid the ultimate price for their beliefs in one way or another. Within the book of Revelation itself, I want to suggest that the thousand years of the millennium, which crops up in these few verses from chapter 20, I want to suggest that it has a primarily pastoral function. As we've seen in previous sermons, Revelation is written to those who have faced dreadful persecution. Those who have heard stories or maybe even personally witnessed Christians being executed for their faith. And the thing is, from the point of view of the first century recipients of the book of Revelation, those attending the seven churches in the seven cities of Asia Minor that Liz and I were privileged to go and visit earlier this year to look at the uh, archaeological ruins, from their point of view, the death of a believer through martyrdom would have appeared to be the ultimate victory for the satanic beast of empire. It's kind of like, you know, the, the empire, this great beast that opposes Christianity in the first century, the worst thing it can do is take the life of a believer. And it was doing it again and again and again in horrific ways. What do you do with that pastorally if you're living in that world? This is what John's trying to address. And he wants his readers to realize that when seen from heaven's perspective, rather than from an earthly perspective, the martyrdom of a believer at the hands of the beast, at the hands of the empire, is not the defeat that it might at first appear to be. Rather, it is a victory in eternal terms. So, he describes those who have been martyred for their testimony to Jesus. Those who have been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus is the language he uses. He describes them as reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So as we delve into this passage in a little bit more depth now, I'd like us to keep clear in our minds that as far as John is concerned, he is seeking to construct here an image of great comfort for his readers. He's seeking to assure those reading or hearing this text being read, that when seen from above, when seen from heaven's perspective, the martyrdom of the faithful believer is the precise opposite of what it appears to be from below. It is victory, not defeat. So an emperor might reign for a decade or two, but Christ reigns and the martyrs with him for a thousand years. It's probably helpful at this stage to outline how this image of the thousand years functions within the passage, because it's uh, slightly convoluted. An angel comes from heaven and binds the dragon and throws him in, into a pit and locks it over him. Satan is therefore unable to deceive the nations for the thousand years. John then describes a judgment scene with those seated on thrones being given authority to judge. But then without elaborating it any further, he moves on to depict those who've been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus. And these martyrs are then raised to life and they reign with Christ for the thousand years in which Satan is bound in the pit. And then at the end of this millennial reign, Satan is released from the pit, rampages on the earth for a while, tries unsuccessfully to overpower the saints... And those who followed Satan are consumed in the fire from heaven. The devil is then thrown into a lake of fire forever and burned away. 
And at this point, if we read on, you get a, another resurrection scene and a final judgment. So I think this little cameo scene here raises a number of questions for us, which if we can help answer them, will help us better understand what John's doing here. So I'm just going to pose uh, four questions for us. So the first question I want to address is, where does this number 1,000 come from? Why 1,000 years? You know, why, did, why do we get that? Is there any clue in this particular number that can aid our interpretation of the passage? And there are two main biblical texts that provide the backgrounds to the thousand years. Psalm 90, verse 4, the psalmist says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. And then we get a reading from uh, 2 Peter, which is actually probably written after the book of Revelation. So John's not quoting it, but it does at least give us insight into the way other Christians in the first century are using this number. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are one day, are like one day. So we've got this strand of thought that 2 Peter here is, is referencing, which we can find elsewhere in the Judaism of the first century, where some people believed that the course of the world's history could be found paralleled in the seven days of creation. So what some first century Jews believed, and we've got an echo of this in 2 Peter, is that uh, history is going to run for um, 6,000 years from creation to um, a, a definitive point, and then you get a thousand-year Sabbath. Some of you may have heard this. I mean, this has found its way down into Christianity. You remember famous Bishop Usher coming up with 4004 BC as being the date of the creation of the world? On precisely this way of looking at things. It's in, this is, he didn't make this up. He was drawing on a very ancient Jewish way of interpreting. Uh, I can remember seeing some wonderful charts dividing human history into different ages with different things happening at different points, um, all the rest of it. I think what I would want to encourage us to take from this is that when, in the book of Revelation, John suddenly uses this number of a thousand years, he's already drawing on an established tradition in Judaism of the thousand years signifying some kind of dawning golden age or some kind of hopeful, peaceful uh, point in the, in the history of creation. Uh, when he speaks of the martyrs as reigning with Christ for a millennium. And I think he's also drawing on a long-established Jewish tradition that this number may not be literal. It's kind of figurative. A thousand years are like a day. It, it's, it, you know, it, we're, not, we're not in the world of literalism here. We're in the world of symbolism. Next question. Why is the last judgment split by the millennium? It's a strange one, isn't it? Within the narrative scheme of Revelation, you suddenly get to this point where it looks like everything's being wound up. I mean, we're in chapter 20. We've only got another chapter and two and a half chapters to go. So really, we ought to be wrapping things up now. We get the beginning of Last Judgment, and then suddenly everything pauses, and there's this, like, bind Satan for a thousand years. The martyrs reign with Christ for a thousand years. Then the saints let out and has another go, and then the Last Judgment continues. What's this little kind of hiatus in judgment for? What it looks like John is doing here is reworking a passage we had uh, read earlier from the book of Daniel. And both Daniel and Revelation, you may have spotted it as we were going through if you were paying attention. If not, that's your homework. Uh, it has thrones, open books, 
a beast that's destroyed and a kingdom that's handed over to one called the Son of Man. And if you read in Daniel, you can kind of chart it through. And if you read in Revelation, what you find is that John uses those same points, but he alters the order around a bit from the book of Daniel. Um, here we need to remember, of course, John is always borrowing material from the Old Testament. You know, John doesn't come up with the book of Revelation out of nowhere. Almost everything in the book of Revelation is a, a borrowing and a slight reworking of stuff from his, his scriptures, from the Hebrew scriptures, that we call the book of Revelation. And what John achieves, or is trying to achieve, I think, by altering Daniel's ordering around, is to provide a bit of a commentary on final judgment. So John separates, as we've seen, the initial stages of final judgment from its conclusion by inserting the thousand-year reign of the martyrs, the millennium, into the middle of it. This allows John to use this image of the thousand years, of the millennium, as a metaphor for the vindication of the martyrs. So it's that point when the martyrs are finally vindicated, when their sacrifice is rewarded. What this means, though, is that the millennium is not something that's going to be worked out in human history in the course of sort of historical events. I want to suggest that this is purely a theological and pastoral metaphor that is addressing the pastoral problem of martyrdom that forms this very real and difficult backdrop to the people he's writing to. As we've seen, John is writing to people who may have seen friends and families martyred, who would have faced the possibility of martyrdom themselves. And what John is wanting to convey is that from a heavenly perspective, the very instant the beast creates a martyr by putting a believer to death, at that moment, the beast is bound. Another cord goes round the beast's power. At the moment when the beast appears most powerful, actually the beast's binding is taken to another level. So the situation facing the recipients of Revelation, pastorally, is reversed. If they go to their deaths for their faith, they do so, not dem they do so demonstrating not the victory of the beast, but rather as those whose witness through martyrdom will assure the destruction of the beast. The New Testament scholar Richard Borkham says... This shows that the theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs, that those whom the beast puts to death are those who will truly live, and that those who contend the beast's right to rule and suffer for it are those who will in the end rule as universally as Christ. So in this way, the millennium is a kind of hyperbole. It's an overstatement for dramatic effect. It's not literal, it's symbolic, it's figurative, but it is pastoral, and therein lies its application. It's that period of time during which the beast is bound, during which the martyrs reign. And this is not to suggest, I think, that John intends it to be predictive prophecy for something that's going to happen at some point in the future, worked out in a temporal sense in the course of human history. My studies on Revelation looking at 17th century Baptists and their interpretation of it. Time after time after time, they kept trying to set a date when the millennium was going to happen. 
You know, this guy thinks it's going to be with the execution of Charles I. This guy thinks it's with the setting up of the Parliament of the Saints. This guy thinks it's with the demise of the Parliament of the Saints. This guy thinks it's 1688 and the glorious revolution of William and Mary. They kept trying to set dates, and none of them were right. There are people today who keep trying to set dates as to when the thousand years is going to reign. Dare I suggest none of them are going to be right. <laughs> because that's not what it's written for. It's a pastoral metaphor about martyrdom. So, on to our next question. Why is Satan released again after the millennium? I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Why is Satan let out of the pit at the end of the thousand years to make war on the saints before then being destroyed a little bit later in the story in the fiery pit? I think that just like the image of the millennium, this also needs to be understood in terms of John's overriding pastoral concern to provide his recipients, his readers, his hearers, with a new perspective on martyrdom. These are both metaphors to help John's readers understand the problem of martyrdom. In spite of John's assurance that martyrdom is actually victory over the beast, the present experience of those in the churches would surely have been that evil continued to be experienced as rampant in the land. I mean, it's all very well, John going, look, millennium, thousand years, reigning with Christ, beast bound. Then the next day, the beast takes another martyr. Then the beast takes another martyr the next day. And so it goes on. And for all of John saying, from heaven's perspective, this is the victory of heaven over the beast, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't blooming look like it. Evil is in the world. The first world war happens. The second world war happens. It carries on, doesn't it? It could appear that the victory of the martyrs is short-lived, to say the least. So, by depicting Satan as, ramp as rampant in the land again, even after the vindication of the martyrs, and then showing his unsuccessful attempts to retake the kingdom of the righteous, John, I think, is providing assurance to his recipients that martyrdom is not in vain. Within God's great scheme of eternity, Yes, there is this period of Satan rampant in the lands that humans live through, but it will not last forever. The fate of the beast has been sealed by the victory of Christ and by the evidence of the blood of the martyrs. Which brings me to my final question. Where does John locate his audience in the narrative? Throughout the book of Revelation, as we've seen in previous weeks, John is constantly inviting his readers to locate themselves within the text. I'll talk through the little, um, the little table in a moment, so don't read on too fast. Um, those reading the book of Revelation are invited not only to identify themselves with various characters in the narrative, but also to find their lived circumstances reflected in the imagery that John constructs. It's kind of like he's always inviting themselves to read themselves into the story. So, John's first audience could, I am sure, equate their own experiences of suffering and martyrdom with John's image of Jesus as the slain lamb. You know, Jesus is the lamb that is slain, Jesus goes to the cross, we suffer and die for our faith too. They would have found their hope of resurrection expressed in the continued existence of the slain lamb who is mysteriously alive and sitting on the throne next to God. And some of John's readers, I think, would have found themselves uh, located in this time between times, the, the gap between 
the, the binding of Satan and the beast and his final destruction. And in a sense, that's where we live, isn't it? Satan is rampant in the land. His power is, is curtailed. At one level, he's been bound. Christ's death did that. The martyrdom of the saints has done that and does that. But we still see Satan rampant and killing people in our world. And I want to suggest a parallel here with the events, uh, the story of the crucifixion. I think John has the story of the death of Jesus, his victory over Satan on the cross, the long, long wait of Easter Saturday before finally resurrection takes place. I think he's seeing that as a kind of parallel of what's going on here, where the death of Jesus parallels the martyrdom of believers, where the victory over Satan on the cross parallels the binding of Satan in the pit, where the long, long wait of Easter Saturday parallels the release of Satan for a little while, and that's where we live now, just as they did in the first century. And then resurrection and final judgment and new creation are the thing that we hope for and live for and live into being in our midst. I think readers of Revelation are invited to locate themselves in the space of Easter Saturday, confidently hopeful, but still living with the present pain of grief and horror coming from the Friday. The interpretation of the millennium that I've been offering here is based on an understanding of it as a metaphor. Few contemporary academic interpreters would claim the millennium is to be interpreted literally, describing a period of exactly a thousand years when those martyred will be raised. Uh, some Christians will claim that, and that's fine. Uh, I don't. But I think many of the readings of the millennium that many of us will have encountered in the church over the years, even if they don't take it literally, still try and work out kind of where it fits within human history. And what I've been trying to do this morning is offer an interpretation of it as pure metaphor in order to avoid some of the interpretive difficulties that will lead us into arguments about pre, post, or amillennialism or dispensationalism and all the rest of it. I don't feel the need to explain those things, by the way. If you know what they are, then you know what they are, and what I'm saying about this may be helpful to you or not. If you don't know what they are, I'd say don't worry too much about it. I'm suggesting that John uses this metaphor of a millennium for a very specific function, which is to help his readers come to terms with great horror and great evil. It's a pastoral metaphor providing a perspective on the real experience of martyrdom. And one of the tragedies of the last 2,000 years is that again and again the beast continues to be rampant in the land, taking the lives of the saints. Down to this present day, people have suffered and died for their faith. From the Christians being thrown to the lions in the amphitheaters of the Roman Empire, to the Anabaptist martyrs of the 16th century, to the, on average, 11 Christians who will be killed today for their faith. The martyrdom of the faithful is real and continues. And the power of the beast is not yet fully ended in our world. We live in the shadow of the cross, and the beast stalks our world, taking victims where it can. 
So I would suggest that the message of revelation that we might need to hear is that death is never the end and that death at the hands of the beast is not defeat. This is a message we need to hear and proclaim and live into being in our faithful lives. The martyrs are not lost to God. They reign with Christ. And every unjust death of martyr and victim is another nail in the eternal coffin of the beast. It just doesn't feel like it. So today on Remembrance Sunday, as we remember the victims of war and the sacrifices made by so many, let us not despair, but rather let us rejoice that God holds the innocent in an eternal embrace of love. And let us pray for an end to violence in our world, that the kingdom of Christ may come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We're going to bring our prayers for the world now, and I'd like to invite you to use with me a simple response as we go through. When I say, in the name of Jesus, we will remember, will you please say, we will remember? Can you remember that? In the name of Jesus, we will remember. We will remember. Great God of everlasting peace and eternal justice, we live in a world where memories are short and history is rewritten. As one generation gives way to the next, the lessons of the past are forgotten and the spirals of violence are allowed to begin once again. We look around us at the world we live in and we see posturing and protectionism. We see poverty and prosperity. We see power and propaganda, but we do not see peace. All too easily our world turns to war as the solution to its problems. And we forget that armed conflict is never a final solution. And that war is always counterproductive to the cause of peace. So in our world of hatred and division, we turn to you, the great eternal force of love that transcends generations. And we ask that you will help us to remember. Help us to speak truths of peace and justice in our time as we tell your story of forgiveness to those who have never heard it and to those who have willfully forgotten it. In the name of Jesus, we will remember we will remember. On this day of remembering, we turn to the cross, the great symbol of violence, oppression, and execution, which lies at the heart of our commitment to peace. May we rediscover what it means to live lives in the light of the cross as the end of violence. May we rediscover in your story the eternal truth that all conflict ultimately ends in the victimization and death of the innocent. Forgive us when we are tempted to believe that fighting for peace is anything other than a deception to justify violence. 
Help us to find courage to speak into being your alternative story, that the only true path to peace lies through forgiveness and reconciliation. And in a world where death so often seems to get the final word, we ask that you will awaken us to the hope of resurrection, where death is itself defeated and peace and justice are fulfilled. May we never forget the hope that lies at the heart of your story. In the name of Jesus, we will remember. We will remember. So with hope set before us and your eternal perspective behind us, we come now to pray for the transformation of our world. In a world of violence, we dare to speak our conviction that it does not have to be this way. And as we speak into being your alternative world of peace and justice, we commit ourselves to living out the truth of that conviction until it is true in our world. So we pray for all who this day are fighting. We pray for all those who will kill another human being in war because they believe that it is the right thing to do. We pray for all those who will kill another in war because they believe they have no choice. We pray for all those who will kill another because it is the only way they know they are alive. For all those who will kill today, we pray forgiveness and mercy. May they discover in their lives the truth spoken from the cross, that forgiveness is offered even to those who kill the innocent. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the name of Jesus, we will remember. We will remember. We pray all for all those who are victims of war. We pray for civilians who are killed as they try to live their lives in peace. We pray for refugees driven from their homes to seek a new life elsewhere. We pray for wounded soldiers discharged by the country they fought for and now reliant on charity to build a new life. For all those who have been victimized by war, may they discover in their lives the solidarity of the cross and may they come to know the path to resurrection that lies through death. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the name of Jesus, we will remember. We will remember. We pray for politicians and power brokers, for peacemakers and peacekeepers. We pray for prime ministers and presidents. May they remember all those they have been elected to represent. May they remember the lessons of the past and the price paid by so many in the service of ideologies of violence. May they come to the conviction that it doesn't have to be this way. And finally, we pray for ourselves. May we learn what it means to live in peace. May we model in our own lives your way of forgiveness and reconciliation.
from the way we are with our loved ones to the way we are at work to the way we vote. May we always seek to live in peace, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others and for your sake, as we remember the cross and live its truth into being in our world. In the name of Jesus, we will remember. We will remember. Amen.